The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. As we come to Genesis 22 this morning, I come with a question. And my question is, what is the purpose of history? Now, having already asked that question, you know, it's a, it assumes that there is one, and I do assume that there's a purpose to history. To some atheistic scientists, the very question itself is absurd. They would say there is literally no purpose to history. I was reading recently about Jacques Monod, who won the Nobel Prize in 1965 for discovering the replication mechanism of genetic material. In 1970, he branched out into philosophy and wrote a book called Chance and Necessity. Newsweek, uh, writing at the time, described his argument in this way. After some 30 years of research in biochemistry and genetics, the short-term scientist, Monod, is convinced that man's existence is due to the chance collision between minuscule particles of nucleic acid and proteins in the vast prebiotic soup. Indeed, Monod argues that all life results from the interaction of pure chance unpredictable mutations, and necessity, Darwinian selection. That sounds like a book well worth reading, don't you think? It reduces us to chance and necessity. Minot himself in the book wrote this, Chance alone is at the source of every innovation or all creation in the biosphere. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind, at the root, the very root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. This central concept of modern biology is no longer one among other possible or even conceivable hypotheses. It is today the sole conceivable hypothesis, etc., etc. The only thing that explains our existence is chance and necessity. What Monod said was, the universe was not pregnant with life nor the biosphere with man. Our number came up in a Monte Carlo game. Is it any wonder if, like the person who has just made a million in the casino, we feel strange and a little unreal? Well, I find that argument strange and a little unreal. It certainly leaves us with nothingness as our future, nothingness as our present significance. How's that for you? Attractive. What's ironic to me is that some of these same atheistic scientists are spending their time at SETI, SETI, Search for the Extraterrestrial Intelligence, listening to radio static from the cosmos and trying to string together some intelligence. They're looking for patterns, you see. And if they see these regular kind of pulsing patterns, they will say, we knew it all along, there's intelligence out there, there had to be. Because there isn't just one Monte Carlo game, but lots of spinning wheels, and somewhere it must have come up life somewhere else. And so we're waiting to hear, and we're looking for patterns, looking for patterns. Can I urge you to look for patterns in the Old Testament? Because when I look for patterns in the history of the Old Testament, you know what I find? The cross of Jesus Christ, again and again and again. And is it accidental? Not at all. There are amazing patterns in biblical history. And each one of them, each one of those, contributes in a smaller or lesser degree to our understanding of the gospel. Noah builds an ark, 
And on it there is safety and off it there is destruction. A picture of Jesus Christ. In Christ you live. Outside of Christ you perish. Or then there's Joseph. His brothers jealous of him. Sold him as a slave. He was despised and rejected by his own brothers. And yet he ends up becoming the very avenue of salvation for the Jews. And then there's Judah. One of the uh, very ones who had rejected him. Later, he comes to his senses and starts to have some some sympathetic love and compassion for his brother Benjamin and offers his life in exchange for Benjamin's to substitute himself. Is it any wonder that it's Judah, the ancestor of Christ, who did this? Oh, it's no accident. There's no chance in this. The history is a story, elaborate, a tapestry woven together. And it's all pointing again and again to the, to the cross. The Passover, for example. The time of the Exodus when the Jews were coming out liberated from slavery and bondage and brought over into the promised land. Such a picture as a whole of salvation. But it came at a price. You see, the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Its blood had to be poured out. It had to be applied. And if you were under the blood, you escaped. You survived, though you deserved death. But the animal was sacrificed in your place so that you could live. Do you see the patterns, the patterns, again and again pointing to Christ? Now, I believe that the scripture is prophetic, the Old Testament scripture, and it's pointing to Christ. And as I've said before, it's always good to repeat, there are two different kinds of prophetic passages in the scriptures. There's the verbally predictive prophecy that Scott Markley did a marvelous job two weeks ago preaching, Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is verbally predictive prophecy, telling us something of the Christ who would save our souls. But then there's a whole other category, and it shows the depth and the richness of God's communication to the human race. And he's doing it by his sovereign control of history. What it means is that biblical history means something. It points to the cross. This is what we call typical or type prophecy. If you look at the cover of your your bulletin, it speaks there of the same thing. And it says there that Abraham reasoned... Hebrews 11:19 that God could raise the dead from which he also received Isaac back as a type. The idea is that Isaac was a type or a pattern of something that would come later and that is Christ. Now there are numerous types or pictures. What it is is that something's acted out in history and it captures an element of Christ's salvation work. Now of all the types that we have in the Old Testament None is better and clearer than what happened on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. It's the, it's the pinnacle, really, of typical predictive prophecy. It's the peak. And so what is the purpose of history? Well, the purpose of all of history is that God may be glorified in the redemption, the full salvation of sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation who will be clustered around the throne worshiping Him forever and ever. We get the joy, He gets the glory. That's the purpose of of all of history. What is the purpose of Old Testament biblical history? It is to point to the Christ who will accomplish that great salvation. And so we read it, and so we learn, and we look for patterns, and they are there. Now, what is the context? 
Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I was, I was taught in seminary that we must never take verses out of context. Have you heard that before? It's very important to not take things out of context. You can make the Bible say anything you want if you rip things out of context. And so in order to emblazon it in our minds, they gave us a slogan, Context is King. Well, I was thinking about that this morning. I was thinking, you know what it really is? That's true. Context is king. But you know what the Old Testament is? It's the king in context. And so there's a context set here in Genesis 22. It's waiting. It's waiting for the Christ. And someday he comes, fulfilling not just this type, but type after type after type. It's the king set in context. Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, and after God had set the table... Then the feast came and it was Christ. Well, the immediate context is that Abraham, a man who lived 2,000 years before Christ, was called to leave his country and his people and go to the land that God would show him. And God made a promise. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What an incredible promise. Eventually, that promise focused down on one miracle baby. His name was Isaac. Genesis 17, 19, God promised him, Your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Abraham waited for 25 years after the original call had come. And finally, at age 100, after 25 years of waiting for that promise... Isaac was born. And what a moment of joy and celebration as God at last fulfilled his prediction and his promise. And then one day, a shocking command came from God. The same God who had both predicted and provided Isaac now commands this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now this story that we have read and we have been studying, this story makes up the greatest typical predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. A picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now what I propose to do is go through and describe 15 points of contact between the story of Abraham and Isaac and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what we've already done in Genesis 22 is we've looked at the story from the human side up. We've talked about how difficult it would have been for Abraham to obey this, how Abraham is our father in faith, and how he laid down footsteps of faith so that we should follow them. And we talked about the nature of his faith and also the nature of testings that will come, the testing of faith. This has all been human looking up so that we become uh, followers of our father Abraham. We're going to walk in his footsteps. It's been human looking up. But now what I want to do is take it from God's side looking down. What is he communicating about the gospel in all of this? And I find 15 types. And we will look at some of them today. I think about half of them, eight. And then the next time I have the opportunity to preach to you, uh, hopefully we will finish them. The first type I want to describe, the first point of contact between the Abraham and Isaac story and the gospel is the father-son relationship. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Now, human relationships, whatever they may be, are crafted in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. God came first, we came after. And so all human relationships are patterned after the Trinitarian relationship. And we believe... 
as Christians, that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the relationship between an earthly father and his earthly son is patterned after the heavenly relationship between the heavenly father and his only begotten son. So we learn first the human relationship, don't we? We don't come into the world knowing the Bible or reading the Bible. We come into the world as infants and we live and we experience first this kind of parental love. Sons experience the love of a father in some cases. And if we don't experience it firsthand, at least swimming around in culture, we see it in other places. And we know what a father and a son is like. We can understand that relationship. And what it does is it heightens for us a sense of the cost, a sense of the sacrifice, what it must have been like for Abraham to offer his son Isaac. Now, we've already discussed this some in the human side, but I want to look at it from the divine side as well. And so as we look at the human side, we can see the cost of the sacrifice in the father-son relationship. Patrick Morley, in his book, The Man in the Mirror, tells a heart-wrenching story about a fishing trip up in Alaska. It's four men and a 12-year-old boy. And they're fishing, and they use one of those pontoon airplanes to get out to that remote area of Alaska. And they have a great day catching salmon. They're there uh, enjoying themselves. But then they notice that the tide has gone out and that the plane is no longer in water. So they have to wait for a while for the water to come back in so they can take off. And when the time comes for them to take off, they, uh, they do so not knowing that one of the pontoons has sprung a leak and is half filled with water. And as they try to take off, it it crashes back down into the bay. All of them survive the crash, but they're now in Alaskan waters and they're facing a vicious riptide. And so they begin to swim for the shore. And as they're swimming and swimming, two of the men make it with, with great difficulty. It's all they can do to survive. And they end up on the shore uh, exhausted. Then they look around to see the other father and his son. And they see them out there. And the father is holding the son, and they're just waiting there. Because the father knows the son can never make it on his own. father's unable to bring the son in, and chooses rather to die with his son than to go on living without him. And so they perish there. Charles Spurgeon told a similar story from the ancient world during the time of the Roman persecution. The two sons of a father were arrested for being Christians. The father, aged beyond the interest of the empire... They're not looking for him. Goes down to intercede with the Roman guards and beg that his sons might be released and that he might die in their place. Well, they're so moved with pity that they decide to go as far as they can. They say, we'll let you exchange your life for one of your sons. Spurgeon says, he looked first at one and then at the other. He would fain say, spare that one, but then they would put the other to death. He would fain say, spare this one, but then the other must die. And so the old man alternated between the one and the other, undecided which should be released until both were slain. He couldn't give the order, he couldn't give the word that either of his sons would be executed. Now, that's the human level, and it helps us to understand what it must have been like for the father giving up the son. What's interesting to me, and I said this recently at a father-son retreat, verse 2, Genesis 22, verse 2, is the first use of the Hebrew word love in the Bible. It's the first time ahav, the Hebrew word for love, is used. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the region of Moriah. Now, it's amazing. When we think of love, we first think of male-female love. That's what all the songs are about and all, for the most part. And as important as that is in God's redemptive plan, as God created a man and a wife and told them to be fruitful and multiply, this word is reserved until finally it's introduced here. And it's introduced in a father-son context. Is that just an accident? I don't think so. Because frankly, I believe that the whole universe is based on the love the father has for his son, his only begotten son. It came first before any man and woman were even created. The father loved the son. He's always loved him, eternally loved him. This is Jesus' prayer in John 17. He says, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, listen, because you loved me before the creation of the world. In effect, he says, I want to bring these believers whom you have given me into the love relationship that you and I have had before the foundation of the world. And so it's no accident that the first time love appears in the Bible is this father-son love. And it's no accident that the first time that love appears in the New Testament is in Matthew 3 at Jesus' baptism. And Jesus is baptized and a voice comes down from heaven saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am greatly pleased. And so the first time love appears in Matthew's gospel, it is the love of the Heavenly Father for His only begotten Son. It's the first time that love appears in Mark's gospel. It's the first time that love appears in Luke's gospel. Interestingly, the first time that love appears in John's gospel is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In effect, our salvation is being brought into the love relationship between the Father and the Son. That's how we get saved. And God is able to love you as a sinner because He loves His Son on your behalf. He sees you in Christ. And so it's fulfilled. In Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What you heard in that beautiful song that Jason sang. What Abraham was asked to do, he's done. He's offered his only son. This is the first point of contact, the father-son relationship. The second is the predetermined and deliberate choice on the part of the father. Abraham knew exactly what he was doing. This wasn't a fit of passion. It didn't come over him in an instant and then he did it. Look what he has to do. There's errands involved. There are tasks involved. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. So he's got to get his donkey. He's got to saddle him. He's got to chop the wood. What must he have been thinking as he's chopping the wood? But this was a predetermined, deliberate choice on the part of the father to give up the son. And how about that three-day journey? What is he thinking as he's walking, as he's walking, as he's walking? Thinking, thinking, thinking. My son is going to be sacrificed. He's going to be sacrificed. It's a predetermined, deliberate choice on the part of the Father. This is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus wasn't caught or arrested or captured. He was given over by the Father to death. And he was done so by the predetermined choice and deliberate foreknowledge of God, it says. Listen to Peter preaching at Pentecost. In Acts 2.23, 
Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And then in Acts 4, as they're praying about the crucifixion. Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Listen, this is Acts 4.28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was the deliberate predestination of God. And so it says in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The heavenly father didn't have a small three-day walk. He had a 4,000-year walk through history, every moment thinking, Jesus is going to die, he's going to die, he's going to die. He's going to die for all the sins of his people. When Noah got drunk, Jesus died for that. When Abraham sinned with Hagar, Jesus died for that. When, when David saw Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, and had her husband killed to cover it up, Jesus died for that. God is thinking about this. This was a predetermined choice on the part of God the Father. Thirdly, we notice that it was the Father and the Son alone on Mount Moriah. The two servants were left behind. There would be no other human beings with them when this went on. Look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. Even dear mother Sarah is entirely left out of this story. It's fascinating to me. It's not that she's not important. She's incredibly important. That's why there's so much about her in the accounts leading up. But this is typical here, typically predictive prophecy. And there is no one other than the Father and the Son. And we must be so clear about this, we who are Protestants, as we communicate with our our dear Roman Catholic friends. And they want to bring in Mary as the co-redemptrix. That's the language, like she's got a role to play in redemption. Oh, be careful about that. We have a lot of common ground with Catholics, but that is not one of them. When John Paul says that Mary's intense sufferings, united also with those of her son, were a contribution to the redemption of us us all, you must say, no, for the Father and the Son alone worked out this salvation. Your good works were not there. There was nothing of you there. It was the Father and the Son and a transaction between them. Salvation was worked at Calvary as a, an eternal transaction between the Father and His Son. Isaiah 59, 16 and 17. God saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So His own arm worked salvation for Him, and His own righteousness sustained Him. He put on righteousness as His breastplate and the helmet of salvation on His head. He put the garments of vengeance, He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped Himself in zeal as in a cloak. There was no one with them. Father and the Son alone. And neither was there anyone at Calvary when it came to the transaction of the salvation of your soul. It was a transaction between the Father and the Son alone. Fourthly, we note how Isaac carried his own wood. Look at verse 6. It says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Now, I think we have to begin to read between the lines here. Isaac was no small boy. I know it makes it very effective when you look at it and think of of a little innocent five-year-old or something like that, and Abraham is going to sacrifice him, but I don't think that's what's going on here. This was a strapping young man who was able to carry all the wood for the burnt offering up the mountain. The Hebrew word for lad or young man or boy, etc., can range even as high as 25 years old or older. 
So this was a strong young man, and he carried up his own wood. Now, this was fulfilled literally, physically, in Jesus. I mean, literally. We couldn't get any more close contact here. In John 19, 16 through 18, it says, So the soldiers took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. Now, the Greek there, in John 19, 17, is intensive. It literally says, he, bearing his own cross himself, went out. Oh, that's a point of contact. Back here to Genesis 22 as we see Isaac going up the hill, bearing his own wood himself. So it's fulfilled physically in Christ. But, even better, it's fulfilled spiritually, isn't it? As Scott preached in Isaiah 53, 6, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, that's the real burden of Calvary, isn't it? It's the laying on Christ, the crushing burden of all of your sin and mine. And that of a countless multitude redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation. What an incredible burden Jesus carried to Golgotha. Charles Spurgeon talked of it this way. The sin of the ages past and the sin of the ages to come, the sins of those elect who were in heathendom and of those who were in Jewry, the sin of the young and the sin of the old, sin original and sin actual, all made to meet, all the black clouds concentrated and brought together into one great tempest that it might rush in one tremendous tornado upon the person of the great Redeemer and Substitute. As when a thousand streamlets dash down the mountainside on the day of rain and all meet together in one deep swollen lake, that lake is the Savior's heart. Those gushing torrents, the sins of us all who are here described as making a full confession of our sins. Or to take a metaphor not from nature but from commerce, suppose the debts of a great number of persons to be all gathered up, the scattered bonds and bills and IOUs that are to be honored or dishonored on such and such a day, all of these laid upon one person who undertakes the responsibility of meeting every last one of them without a single assistant. Such was the condition of the Savior. God made to meet on him the debts of all his people so that he became responsible for all the obligations of every one of those whom his father had given him, whatsoever their debts might be. All sins are made to meet, and then having met together, having been tied up in one crushing load, the whole burden is placed on Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah that all of my life's sins were wrapped up and placed on my substitute. Hallelujah that he bore my burden for me. Praise God forever and ever. Fifthly, look at the fire of judgment ready to consume Isaac. Fire, consistently a picture of the holiness of God and his hatred of sin. A picture not just of his holiness, but of his wrath poured out. Like fire and brimstone that pours down, we've already seen on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a picture of judgment and wrath as well as holiness. And so it says in Hebrews 12, 29, that our God is a consuming fire. And so it was that the sacrifice was to be bound up and laid on an altar and burned up. 
his blood poured out and he was to be burned up. And so Abraham carried the fire up Mount Moriah with which to consume the body of his son, his only son whom he loved. Now, how is this fulfilled in Christ? Well, you know that Christ's body was not burned up, not at all. But there's a different kind of fire at work in Christ. First of all, there is a burning zeal inside Christ's heart. And fire language is used for it in John chapter 2. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he made a whip and cleansed the temple. And it was observed at that point, and in John 2 recites this verse, it says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. Now, the word used literally is the word used of being consumed as in a fire. There was a fire inside his heart for the purity and the holiness of God's house. It's ironic that that actually is the very thing that got him killed physically. Because Jesus messed up the business of religion there and they couldn't stand that. He was hitting them where they hurt, the pocketbook, you know, hitting their income. And so that zeal literally burned him up in that it was destroyed. It destroyed him. He was killed as a result of that zeal. That's one nature. But how much more than the cup of God's wrath that he drank to the bottom? Jesus went to Gethsemane. It says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? What cup are we referring to? Well, I think Revelation describes it very well when it speaks of those that are condemned. In Revelation 14.10, it says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. That's the cup that Jesus drank at Calvary. He drank your hell and mine, if you're a Christian. He drank it to the bottom. Yes, two others were crucified with him that day, but they didn't drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus alone drank that, and he drank it to the bottom. Six, we notice the death penalty is required. From the very beginning, God has established that the wages of sin is death. In Genesis 2.17, it says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so the death penalty was established from the very beginning. The command to sacrifice Isaac was not in any way unjust. For Isaac was a sinner and he deserved to die. The wages of sin is death. And it says in Ezekiel 18.4, Every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Now, later in Israel's history, when God killed the firstborn of all of Egypt, the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed in their place so that the firstborn of Israel would not also perish. Isaac deserved to die. And so do we all, all we who have sinned, and that's all of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus was born to die. He was born to die, among other things. He had to lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Isaac was not merely to be sold as a slave into slavery. He wasn't merely to be wounded. He was to be put to death. The death penalty had to be paid. Jesus also, born to die. It says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. So Jesus paid the death penalty. And we are sinners. We violate the Ten Commandments probably every day. We, we violate the two great commandments every day. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we don't. 
And God has taken up all of that selfishness and pride and lust and evil and put it on Jesus. And he died the death penalty we deserve. Seventh, there is the shocking moment of revelation. Isaac did not know as he began up that mountain that he was the sacrifice. Look at uh, verses 7 and 8. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them uh, went on together. Now, at some point, Isaac realized, I'm the sacrifice. It's me. I don't know when that was. Maybe halfway up the mountain, Abraham told him. Maybe after they'd arranged the wood, Abraham told him. Maybe he waited until he began to bind him. Maybe that's when Abraham told him. I don't know. But at some point, he realized, I'm the sacrifice. I I don't know what he thought at that moment, but it must have been quite a shock to realize, I'm the sacrifice. Now, you're saying, how in the world would this be fulfilled in Christ? Now, here we're on holy ground, brothers and sisters. In his deity, Jesus always knew what the Father wanted him to do. But when Mary wrapped him up in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, did he know he was born to die? No. Jesus submitted himself to a normal growing process. And so it says in Luke 2.52, And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. At some point, long before, I believe, he began his public ministry, long before that, the father began to communicate to his son, you are going to die as a sacrifice. You're going to die. And Jesus himself spoke of this in John 10, 17 and 18. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Now, when did he receive that command from his father? I say it was before the foundation of the world. But when did Jesus in his human consciousness know that that command he had received from his father? I don't have any idea. It was before he began his public ministry, for certainly he knew it again and again. He testified that he had to be sacrificed. But he didn't know it when he was wrapped as a babe and laid in the manger. He grew into that knowledge. And step by step, the Father educated him. And then we come to Gethsemane. And there the realization, the shocking realization, reaches its peak before the cross. Some time ago, I read in the King James Version, in Mark 14, 32 and 33. Listen to this. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit ye here while I shall pray. Mark 14, 33. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be, listen, sore amazed and to be very heavy. Sore amazed? Well, I've learned a long time ago that the King James Version is one of the most accurate translations ever been done. It's remarkable. It's just that English has changed. Why was he sore amazed? That, that was strange to me. So I went and looked up the Greek, and the Greek word does mean to be astonished or amazed. It's usually connected with Jesus' miracles and the crowd's reaction to them. Well, this is strange. What's happening? So I looked at the Greek root, and it comes from the sense of being struck or shocked. 
by something, perhaps something new or unexpected. Now, how in the world could we use this word, could Mark use this word of Jesus? Was it that he would die? No. He knew he would die. It was what it would be like to drink the cup of God's wrath. Imagine listening to a game on crackly AM radio and comparing that experience to watching it on state-of-the-art HDTV. There's just a whole different level. You get the, the idea, you get the facts, you get what's happened, but there's a whole different, oh, wow, look at that. I think that that's what Jesus was sore amazed at when he came to Gethsemane. God did something inside him and showed him what it would be like to drink that cup. And he was struck to the ground. And blood starts coming out of his pores. It's, it's more than you can imagine. Mel Gibson can't show it. No movie can show it. It's just, ah! And he's, ah! This astonishment. That's what it's like to drink that cup? Yes. Will you still do it? And here we come to the greatest, most heroic decision that's ever been made in history. Father, Abba, if it is possible for this cup that you're now showing me more fully and completely, this cup to pass from me, may it be so. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. That was an act of obedience, wasn't it? And that's the final point of contact for us today. Isaac willingly yielded to his death. You say, where do you get that out of Genesis 22? Well, just surmise with me. Here's a young man, strong enough to carry a bunch of wood up a mountain. And here's a hundred-year-old guy whose body was as good as dead, okay? It's not much of a contest. I'm not trying to be irreverent, but imagine Isaac said, Oh, no, you're not doing that to me. What chance did Abraham have? Who's stronger, Isaac or... If you don't like that, who's faster? It's an unseemly picture. Don't think about it long. But if Isaac didn't want to be sacrificed, he wouldn't be sacrificed. That's why I think he was older. I think he's in his 20s. And he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he said, well, why was he bound? Because the sacrifices were bound. And frankly, if they had gone through with what he said, it would have been a mercy to Isaac to bind him. He willingly yielded to death. And herein I find my salvation. Listen to this. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is the sublime courage of Jesus Christ. Never in history has anyone shown that much courage. In the Garden of Gethsemane. He took that burden. He took the cup. He accepted it. said, I'll drink it. And so it says in Romans 5.19, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous. Jesus obeyed his Father. He drank the cup. Now, why did God show it more fully to him in the garden? So that he could make that choice. That he could make a decision. And of his own free will, he could die in my place as my substitute, knowing fully what it would entail. And he did it anyway. Martin Luther said, never a man feared death as this man. But he didn't fear the death that the robbers that were going to be dying on left and right. No, no, he feared hell. 
and it's something to be feared. Jesus himself fear, said, fear not those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing to you. I'll tell you the one to fear. Fear the one who has power to send you to hell. Jesus went to hell on the cross. He drank the cup of wrath, and he did it willingly. Today we've looked at eight points of contact between Abraham and Isaac, the story in Genesis 22, and the gospel. The father-son relationship in which he was told your son, your only son, would be sacrificed. It was a predetermined, deliberate choice by the father in both cases. The father and the son were alone. There was no one with them, humanly speaking. And so the heavenly father and the heavenly son alone worked salvation for us. Fourthly, Isaac carried his own wood and Jesus carried the wood of his cross and also bore my sins and yours too, if you have trusted in him. The fire of judgment ready to consume Isaac, the fire of hell consuming Christ spiritually. The death penalty was required. It was not paid in Isaac's case. It was paid in Jesus' case. What Abraham was asked to do, he's done. He's offered his only son. Shocking moment of revelation when at last Isaac realizes that he is to be the substitute. Jesus all along had been instructed in, the, in his human understanding that he would be a substitute. And in Gethsemane, a more full revelation. And then finally, Isaac willingly yielded himself to death. And so also did Jesus Christ. What applications can we take from this wonder, amazement, astonishment? This gospel wasn't thrown together, but it's been being worked out for thousands of years of history. This is my salvation and yours too if you trust him. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sins. That great burden that you've been carrying around, maybe you carried it in here today. A sin habit, wickedness. Give it to Christ Give it to him. He is the only substitute. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wipe away your sin. Give it to Christ. And if you're tempted to waver and quaver in your faith, get back in the word. Read Genesis 22. Look over these types. Try to guess what I'm going to say about the next eight types or whatever. Think about it. Wonder about it. Think about the gospel. And build your faith again through the word. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.